you will join me in the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. We continue in our series through Luke and conclude chapter 7 this morning. The title of our sermon is Your Faith Has Saved You. Our key words for our worshipers in training are woman, sin, and forgiveness. And just to make mention, you probably received a little outline on the way in this morning. Several people have just relentlessly harassed me over the last few years to provide something of this nature. So uh, we'll give it a go. If you like this, uh, I will try to maintain that and keep that up and have those available for you to follow along uh, perhaps a bit easier as we preach through the Gospel of Luke. So please let me know what you think of it at the end of the service today. You know, over the last few weeks, I've been reminded why I do all that I can do personally to keep from going to see uh, the doctor. (laughs) Not because I don't appreciate them and what they do to help us feel better, but I don't like sitting in waiting rooms, then sitting in a patient room, and then getting shots, and then taking a bunch of pills only to wait a few weeks to get a bill in the mail, and then having to follow up two or three times afterwards, I don't assume that's probably how most of us like spending our time. But nevertheless, in God's common grace, he has provided us with medical knowledge and medications that will bring restoration to our sick bodies. Something I've thought about through my own sickness over the last few weeks is that there really are two very different kinds of sickness that people have. There are those like I've experienced and all of you have seen. You get, you get them. They are very obvious. Everyone around you lets you know that you don't look very well. You drag around all day. You have a very hard time getting any motivation to do anything that you need to do. You just feel lousy and you look lousy and it's very obvious that you're sick. But there's another often more serious kind of sickness. It's those things that happen in our bodies that we don't know about. Those things that happen inside of us that sometimes only begin to reveal themselves when it's very serious or even too late to treat at all. Every now and then, these things will be caught as a result of some kind of treatment or a test that's administered. But there are things like certain types of cancers, for instance, that someone might get and many times are not aware of it until it has already taken over a significant portion of their bodies. It can happen to any of us, and given the amount of people that are here, I assume that it will happen to some of us. And as scary as that sounds, there's something very similar to this, yet far more frightening, that works out in the same way. That is the sin of self-righteousness. You see, if I go off on an angry rant at someone, or if you steal something from someone else, or if someone commits adultery, these sins are very obvious. They're external. They're easy to spot. They're easy to address. They're easy to deal with. That's not to say that there won't be pain and discomfort, but we know what we're dealing with, and it's very easy to point to. 
Did you do that? Yes, I did. Okay, well, let's talk about that. Let's see what God's word says about it, that we can move through this. You see, that's the external sickness, if you will. The sins that we all commit from time to time that are very obvious to us and are very obvious to those around us. But far more frightening are those sins of self-righteousness that we ourselves are often very unaware of. A prideful disposition that assumes that our external deeds are in order and are maintained. Therefore, our hearts are clean and pure before God as well. Self-righteousness, you see, is a deadly, silent cancer that creeps into our hearts unaware and begins to quietly infect our lives and the way that we interact with others and the way that we interact with God. R.C. Sproul Jr. writes, We are adept, not at fighting our sins, but hiding them. We gather each Lord's Day dressed in our smiles, share our praise reports and our health concerns, pat ourselves on our backs, and return home to our gross and heinous sins. We miss this in part because we are preternally positive about ourselves. We are willing to confess that there are some weak churches out there somewhere down the road. There are destructive schools out there, but ours is one of the good ones. There are broken families out there, but ours is, as far as anyone can tell, a model of grace and peace. There are deluded sinners out there, but I thank you, Lord, that I am not like them. And you know, perhaps one of the most terrifying things about the cancer of self-righteousness is its silence. Many self-righteous people will never know they're self-righteous until it's too late. It's terminal. It's standing before Jesus and hearing those frightful words, depart from me, I never knew you, you worker of lawlessness. It was this cancer that Jesus attacked so aggressively in the Pharisees. Men who thought they had it all together because their external deeds were completely conformed to their interpretation of the law of God and their additional laws that they had developed to ensure that they were able to display their righteousness so that everyone could see it. In this morning's text, we are going to see the difference between a self-righteous heart that assumes to be far superior to all others because the external activities are exemplary, while the cancer is slowly eating away inside. And we'll compare that to a sinner's heart, a heart of a woman that knows inside and out that the sickness is present, that a physician is absolutely necessary, and that their survival is dependent upon his healing hand. A sinner who is humbled to recognize that her only hope is in Jesus and that she cannot heal herself. So let's begin reading in Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, 
when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, Luke doesn't tell us why Simon the Pharisee invited Jesus to eat with him in his home, but whatever Simon's intentions were, what will become very obvious to us is that his intentions were infused with a very strong hostility toward Jesus. In the first century, there were very common courtesies that were extended to any guest that might have come into someone's home. Uh, particularly if they were going to be offered a meal of some sort. Generally, when a guest entered the home, uh, the host of that home would place their hand upon the person's shoulder and would give them the kiss of peace on the cheek. Additionally, a guest would enter into the home. They would remove their sandals, and because the roads were very dusty and their feet were certainly very dirty, a water basin and a towel were offered for them to clean their feet. And lastly, as a symbol of peace and unity, dinner guests were anointed on the head with a touch of olive oil. But what we will see in Jesus entering Simon's home, there was no kiss offered. His feet remained embarrassingly dirty, and he remained untouched by the oil of Simon. It would have been very obvious to Jesus. It would have been very obvious to everyone else who was present exactly what was going on here. Simon was treating Jesus with contempt. And he carefully avoided every custom that would have made Jesus to feel comfortable and to feel welcome in his home. Simon's home most likely would have been built around a courtyard where all of the formal meals would have been served. And the guests would recline on their left elbow, sort of laying down on their sides on a mat or on a very low-level couch, and they ate with their their right hand. And so their, their feet were considered very unclean. And of course, at this point, Jesus' feet were very unclean. In the physical sense, so they extend their feet away from the table so as to be away from the food. During such occasions, the doors of the homes, especially of those who were prominent members of the community, would be left open so that those who passed by could see what was going on inside or even enter and listen to the conversation if they so desired. So, no doubt, when Jesus is eating in the home of a Pharisee, there would have been a great deal of coming and going with onlookers. A tremendous amount of people would have been noticing Simon's disregard for his guest. And among those uninvited guests at the meal that found their way into the courtyard was a woman who Luke does not name. He simply says, a woman of the city who was a sinner. Now what's obvious is that the woman was considered a sinner because of some immoral aspect of her life. It could have been her occupation. It could have been her interaction with men in the community. Luke doesn't tell us, but what is obvious is that it is clear to everybody. Everybody knows this woman's reputation. Well, Luke does not tell us what is obvious here is that it is clear 
that she has some immoral lifestyle and yet she has heard, she has gotten word that Jesus would be dining at Simon's house. So she went and she retrieved an alabaster flask of ointment and brought it with her. And those details are so telling when Luke writes them. An alabaster flask. It was a, it was a box that contained a precious ointment and was, was very expensive, made of gems from Egypt. Almost a year's worth of wages. It had a very long neck on it and it would have to be broken in order for an ointment to be poured out of a flask. So Luke tells us that she brought this ointment and as she wept, her tears wet the feet of Jesus. And then she lets her hair down, which was culturally unacceptable. According to the Talmud, a a husband could divorce his wife for letting her hair down in the presence of another man. And yet she wiped her tears off the feet of Jesus with her hair. And she kissed his feet and poured an expensive ointment upon them. Now consider the setting. You have a morally corrupt woman. And she is wetting the nasty, unclean feet of Jesus with her own tears. She's breaking social custom by letting her hair down and wiping up everything with her hair and then doing as she intended before the tears anointing his feet with this expensive ointment. Why was she crying? Why was she in tears? Well, Luke doesn't tell us exactly, but it seems to be out of a heart of gratitude, as we'll see in Jesus' words, out of a heart of faith. You see, it's likely that somewhere, somehow, she had heard Jesus' words, either through a sermon, either through someone else coming and telling her what Jesus had spoken, and those words went directly into her sin-filled heart, and she turned to Jesus, and she found forgiveness and restoration. Her obvious joy in Christ, perhaps coupled with heartbreak over how Jesus had been treated by Simon, brought her to tears as she was humbled to his feet, disregarding and rejecting disgust that was sure to be directed toward her as a result of her actions, as a result of her life. No doubt the Pharisee and the other guests were in such absolute shock at what they were seeing. And yet she continued to anoint Jesus' feet and she continued to kiss them. There's a verb here that implies that she was kissing his feet again and again, just constantly kissing the feet of Jesus. Think of it. She was a mess. Uncontrollable weeping. Now probably mud in her hair and on the ground, ointment on her hands and her face as she rests on her knees, kissing the feet of the Savior. It is so clear that this woman loves Jesus. Her new spiritual life after a life of embarrassing, disgraceful sin and guilt has brought her to the end of herself as she puts her all in Jesus now. She didn't care what others thought. She wasn't concerned about what was considered proper. She was concerned with expressing a humble love for the Savior who has so affected her life that she gladly took on the role of a servant to bring glory to him. 
Her new priority in life was to adore and serve Jesus and could think of no other way to express it than in a humble mess, kissing his feet. You know, when we have the great joy of watching someone who's newly converted to Christ begin to mature in their understanding of the gospel, in their understanding of the things of God and what he calls us to in the Bible, it is really amazing to watch how their servant heart is developed. Sometimes it may be someone who has for years rejected Christ, raising every objection possible, certain that they would never have anything to do with Jesus. And then in his time, Jesus removes a heart of stone. He replaces it with a heart of flesh and gives them the gift of faith to trust in him. And all of their affections toward him are changed. The pride of self-dependence is gone and the humility of a servant who seeks to be obedient to God is present. As they give themselves to learning and understanding and applying the word of God and serving the church and telling others about Jesus and, and the great work of the gospel. Perhaps you remember when you became a Christian, all the things that you once thought were so important began to fall away. The money that you always worked so hard to hold on to suddenly became a means that you could support ministries of the church and be a blessing to others. The conversations you used to have about, about your hobbies and movies and about profane things were no longer having the same appeal to you and you desired to hear more about Jesus and what he is doing in the lives of others instead. Your time that you once considered so selfishly It was precious to you to do what you wanted because you wanted to do it. This turn that you would gladly gather for worship. You would gladly go to serve others, even if that meant giving up the time that you would invest in your hobbies. But you were glad and willing to do it for the good of your soul and for the glory of Christ. You see, when Jesus truly changes the heart of a person... All that seems important and all that seems valuable quickly falls away as we see the value of the priceless treasure of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. The appearance of foolishness to the world and the opinions of onlookers no longer seem to matter, for we know. We know that the cross is a stumbling block and utter foolishness to non-believing people. So when Christ changes us, we we metaphorically, like this woman, let our hair down to humbly serve at the feet of Jesus, regardless of how that might change all of our other circumstances. And so I have to ask this morning, are you serving humbly at the feet of Jesus? Do you have a heart that seeks to love Christ, to bring glory to Christ, to make Christ known? Or are you too concerned about the cost of following Jesus that you are unwilling to submit to his lordship, to his authority in your life? You see, true joy is found not in holding on to our perceptions of what might one day bring us lasting satisfaction. Everything in this world will fall far short of lasting hope and joy. True joy is found when we fall at the feet of Jesus 
and we humbly repent of our sin and follow him in thankful obedience for giving himself that we can live forever in the great peace of his presence. Jesus commands all men everywhere to repent of their sins and to trust in him. Have you done that? Have you banged all of your hope and all of your joy and all of your treasure in Jesus Christ? If not, I commend him to you and call you to his feet that you might experience true eternal life for his glory. Let's read on verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. The heart of Simon is quickly revealed a heart of harsh judgmentalism and condemnation. Is it true that this woman is a sinner? Not a doubt, of course. But the important question that Christians must all consider is raised right here. Namely, how is it that we are to respond to sinners? As we've seen before and as we will see at the end of this passage this morning, Jesus does not avoid the woman's sin. He doesn't pretend like it doesn't matter. But he works out the very thing that he commanded in Luke chapter 6. Forgive and you will be forgiven. You see, Simon was so concerned about what he knew to be true of the woman on the exterior that he never stopped to consider what might be going on in her heart. Her true spiritual condition was of no concern whatsoever to Simon. He simply looked at what he saw on the outside and condemned her as unclean and unworthy of compassion and care. Simon's righteousness was the kind that would prefer that Jesus simply kick her away. Back to her sin, back to her misery. What an indictment on Simon that is. He saw the woman perform an act of repentance and devotion and refusing to recognize that repentance. Instead, he continues to identify her simply as a sinner. You see, Simon the moralist had a cold and bitter heart. It was a heart void of grace. And notice what Luke records here. These were not words that Simon spoke so that everyone could hear. Luke wrote that Simon said to himself these words. In other words, these were his thoughts. If the man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. What hatred! If this Jesus were so wonderful and who he claims to be and who everyone says he is, he would know better than to have anything to do with this vile, unclean woman. What a disgrace. And don't you love how Jesus responds to his thoughts? Simon's assumption was that Jesus' claim was to merely be a prophet. But immediately upon thinking this thought... We get a glimpse of the divine nature of Jesus here. 
He perceives Simon's thoughts and he responds, Simon, I have something to say to you. Say it, teacher. You can hear the sarcasm in Simon's response. Oh, yes, please, wise teacher, please tell me what you have to say. Little did Simon know he was about to be silenced by the wisdom of Jesus as he clearly reveals the wickedness of Simon's heart. Let's keep reading verse 41. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Jesus is using a parable to illustrate for Simon the condition of two individuals who are both sinners. A denarius was generally the equivalent about one day's worth of wages for the common worker. So the two individuals had significant debt but one obviously much larger than the other. One would owe about 50 days worth of wages and the other owed 500 days worth of wages. And it's important to note that this isn't money that they made and they had some extra income on top so they could pay back their debt. This is all they had to live on. The debt was significant. So Jesus uses this parable to point out to Simon a very important lesson. According to outward moral standards, the woman was undoubtedly a 500 denarii sinner. But who was the 50 denarii sinner? None other than Simon himself. There was no doubt and there was no hiding the fact that outwardly the woman was infinitely more sinful than Simon. No question about it. It's as if Jesus is saying, go ahead, Simon, pat yourself on the back. Your morality is far greater than this woman's. She's been defiled innumerable times. She's lived her life in sin and misery, and you sought to live a life yourself of moral conformity. You've kept yourself from many of the things she's experienced in her life. Congratulations. But what's glaringly obvious here and what Simon wasn't prepared to hear was that despite his morality, he too was a great sinner. And as a moral conformist, he really had the same problem as this low-life sinner that he so readily condemned. It was a blow to Simon's pride, a penetrating stake to his heart. It's clear that Simon never considered himself to be sinful. And he's the perfect representation of thousands and thousands of religious sinners that surround us every day. Our neighbors, our co-workers, and sadly perhaps even someone sitting in here this morning. You know, it's really easy to look at the sins of others without taking a single look at our own. If we're going to grow in Christ, if we are going to be sanctified day by day, we can certainly thank God with all of our hearts that we have not endured the pain and the misery of certain sins in our lives that we might see in the lives of others. 
I thank God that I'm not held by an addiction. I thank God that I have great faithfulness and joy in my marriage. I thank God that I have a desire to honor him with my life. But even so, there is significant sin in my life that keep me from the one thing that God requires of all men to determine our eternal destiny, perfection. You see, Simon and all the Pharisees probably would have admitted that they weren't perfect, but they saw their shortcomings as insignificant and assumed that God would simply overlook them. There was simply no category in their minds for equating themselves and their own sin with the sin of those around them, the lower-class, unclean people that are always looked down on and disgraced. But Jesus turns such wretched, awful thinking on its head, doesn't he? Sure, Simon, you may not be the 500 denarii sinner. I'll give you that. But you are a 50 denarii sinner. And in the end, your debt still has to be paid. You know, perhaps you've been reminded in moments of pride as you've condemned the sins of others that the proper step in making righteous judgment is first removing the log from your own eye that you might see a speck in your brother's eye. It's painful, but it's necessary. And it's a helpful reminder that, well, God may keep us from many sins, and we praise him for that. We are still sinful. We will never be free from our need of a perfect righteousness our own personal righteousness, our own self-righteousness is distasteful. It is ugly before God because it is tainted with sin and pride. We need the righteousness of another. We need the perfection of another to stand in our place that we might be counted as perfectly righteous. This is why God made Jesus Christ the perfect law-keeping sinner, Savior to be sin that we might become the righteousness of God. It's the great exchange of the gospel. My sins placed on Christ, his righteousness counted toward me. And when we understand the great cost of our sin, namely the necessity for Christ to be horrendously murdered on our behalf, we begin to understand this very reality that, that Jesus is presenting our sins are no less condemning than their sins. I am a sinner just like you. I need a sinner, a, a savior just like them. I am in need of a perfect righteousness that I cannot possibly provide just like everybody else. In the 18th century, when John Wesley and George Whitfield were at the peak of their evangelistic ministries, one of the greatest supporters of what they were doing was the Countess of Huntington. He once invited the Duchess to hear the preaching of Whitfield, who was known for very clear articulations of the gospel. And he told everyone all the time that they were sinful, their souls were defiled, and they had a great need for redemption. And he called them to repentance. Well, the Duchess replied in a letter to the Countess after hearing the preaching of Whitfield and said this, It is monstrous to be told 
that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl on the earth. This is highly offensive and insulting, and I cannot but wonder that your ladyship should relish any sentiments so much at variance with high rank and good breeding. What a sad indictment of a small-minded, bigoted person from the upper class of old England. And yet such thinking is so prevalent, isn't it? It's very, very prevalent around us. While many are content to receive Jesus' message of love and forgiveness, to actually be called to submit to his authority and admit our own wretchedness of heart is considered highly offensive and insulting. And indeed, our sins are highly offensive and insulting. The Children's Catechism asks, What does every sin deserve? The answer? The anger and judgment of God. Not just one category of certain sins. Not just outward obvious sins. What does every sin deserve? The anger and judgment of God. Oh, but how quickly we hear, I'm a good person. I don't need that hellfire religion. What they're really saying is, I don't need the grace of God. I don't need reconciliation. I don't need to be restored with God. I don't need Jesus. That's what that means. And my friend, if this is you, I want you to know you need Jesus more than you will ever know. How good is good enough? The Bible says perfect. And surely it wouldn't take long to reveal to you that you fall far short of that mark. You, like Simon, might have a great list of accomplishments to credit in your category to the good. But I assure you, it's not good enough. You need the atoning death of Jesus Christ and his perfect righteousness to be credited to your account so that you not have to pay the eternal penalty of sin, which Christ has already accomplished for his people. You see, Jesus makes the very clear point that while Simon and this woman were debtors of significantly different levels, the outcome was exactly the same. Neither one of them was able to pay what they owed. It doesn't matter if your debt is $1 or a million dollars. If you are unable to pay the debt, you are guilty as the other. And this is the condition of all of mankind, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Without Christ, the debt cannot be paid. You cannot persuade God to accept a currency of your own making. Perhaps you're trying to pay with the currency of integrity. Lord, everyone around me is dishonest in their work and in their lives. I'm the only honest man I know of. Surely you will recognize this. And grant me eternal life. Maybe you're trying to deal with a domestic currency. In this X-rated world, my life would receive a wholesome, safe for the whole family G rating. I'm faithful to my wife. I love her and my children. I'm a good husband. I'm a good father. I'm a good son. I have accountability partner and I listen to Christian radio in the car wherever I go. Perhaps you favor a social currency. 
I give a lot of money to charities throughout the world. I volunteer at the Crisis Pregnancy Center, and I give out meals once a year in the park downtown. I really do care about others, and the world would be a much better place if there were more people just like me. But you know, perhaps the biggest delusion is the currency of church. You know, I practically live at the church. I'm in the doors whenever they're open, and I even got a key so I could be there when they're not because I am the biggest servant I know, and God loves it. And yes, indeed, God does recognize and love many of these things. But none of these currencies erases our enormous debt. Regardless of our individual morality, we are broken, sinful people who need a redeemer. This sinful woman very clearly understood that there was no way she could ever pay back what she owed, but that God would wipe her slate clean. Praise God. It is only by God's mercy that we are aware of our sin. Simon, Jesus asks, which of these two will love the money lender more? Simon's trapped in the corner. He's forced to answer. The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. You've judged rightly. If you're truly a Christian and yet show very little love for Jesus, perhaps, I want you to consider perhaps it's because you've never truly seen what a great sinner you actually are. And in doing so, seeing how sure and sweet and complete the forgiveness of Christ truly is. Do you, like Simon, count the forgiveness of Christ as cheap? Oh, how desperately you need to know the significance of your own sin. That you can understand the beauty and the bounty of his mercy and grace. Let's move on. Verse 44, then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. What a sad indictment. All along, Simon's intent is to condemn Jesus and the woman, while all along, Simon was the one who is in the greatest darkness. You know, perhaps you're amazed when you read passages like 1 Timothy 1.15, where the Apostle Paul wrote, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. Paul? The foremost of sinners. The Apostle Paul, who was repeatedly beaten and who suffered great loss for the sake of the gospel. He wrote 13 letters that are included in the New Testament. He did more for the spread of Christianity in his life than anyone else. He calls himself the foremost of sinners. Yes, Paul. This wasn't self-effacement. This was Paul recognizing the reality of his own heart. Although he was clearly redeemed by Christ, he was still contaminated by the remnants of sin. 
He knew how prone he was to make holy pronouncements in one moment and a few minutes later to succumb to burning envy or pride or judgmentalism and unrighteous thinking. You see, spiritual greatness doesn't rest in what we do. It rests in what we know. More importantly, it rests in who we know, in Jesus Christ. It is so true of all of us, and it is so very important that we not succumb to the vile, silent cancer of self-righteousness. With a deep heart of gratitude and love for our Lord, this sinful woman thought nothing too much to serve Jesus. She was grateful for Jesus, and there wasn't a mark of gratitude too costly to bestow on him. Her life was forever changed, whatever that meant for her. Why? Because she knew. There was no question to her about her sinful life. But she knew what Jesus had offered. Very much unlike Simon, she was willing to admit that she was broken and battered in so many ways and that she didn't have it all together. And the significant difference between her and Simon was that she admitted it while he assumed himself righteous and saw Christ completely unnecessary. In his mind, there was very little to be forgiven. Therefore, there was very little love for the Savior. You know, I've said often there is one primary condition that each person must meet in order to become a member of Ephesus Church. You have to be broken and screwed up and messed up and very sinful. Because when you are there, you are recognizing, this is my heart. I need the Savior. This is the heart of a Christian. I and broken and battered and sinful. But Christ is perfect in every way and I need him and I want him and I will fall at his feet to serve him all the days of my life. Do you know and understand the significance of your sin and how great a cost it is atoned for in Jesus? Forever let this great principle laid down by the Lord Jesus in this passage abide in our memories and sink into our hearts It is one of the great cornerstones of the entire gospel. The only way that we will be a people pleasing unto God is through repentance of our sins and forgiveness through Jesus Christ. We can do nothing of value until we are reconciled to God. We must work from a life in Christ, not for a life in Christ. Do you get that? We cannot clean ourselves up and present ourselves before God on our own. We must run to him. We must fall at his feet and admit our sins and our need for redemption, just like this sinful woman. We can spend all the days of our lives repeatedly kissing his beautiful feet. Finally, verse 48, and he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him, began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You see, Jesus doesn't minimize her sin. He didn't seek to hide the fact that she was indeed sinful. He acknowledged it. 
and then he forgave it. Oh, what grace, what mercy, what great love. And the people again were shocked. Who is this man? How can he forgive sins? So little did they understand about Jesus and so much they had yet to learn of who he truly was. I want us to leave this passage with a deep sense of our Lord Jesus Christ's amazing mercy and compassion to the chief of sinners. Me. You. Let us see in his kindness to this woman an encouragement to anyone, however bad you might be, to come to Jesus for pardon and forgiveness. That word of his shall never be broken. All who come to me, I will never cast out. Never shall anyone despair of salvation if he will only come to Christ. Christian, what evidence is there in your life of your love to Jesus who has loved you and died for your sins? It's a serious question. And if indeed your faith has saved you, the overflow of your heart will be an abiding and deep love in Jesus Christ. Do I, do you really love Jesus? This is the unfailing test of our faith. Is our love for him growing? This is a sure indicator of spiritual health. How beautiful Jesus is. He is pure. He is utterly sinless and holy and perfect. Yet this sinful woman sends from him not condemnation, but forgiveness and acceptance. And it freed her up to pour her love upon him. And this is the way that Jesus receives all sinners that come to him. How beautiful this woman is. For she has been forgiven. Her joy is in her forgiveness. Though her sins were as scarlet, she is now pure as snow. And if you understand the gospel, you understand what happens inside of her. And she loves Jesus. And to this day, she continues to kiss the feet of Jesus. Do we see our weakness? Do we realize how much we need our Savior's presence and enablement? Do we understand the danger of the silent cancer of self-righteousness within? Do you want to come to Jesus for salvation and restoration or strengthening? If so, hear Jesus' words to you now. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The call for us all, brothers and sisters, is that we would fall at the feet of Jesus, that we too might go in peace. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are so very grateful that in your word you have revealed to us the very dark and often secret cancer of self-righteousness that so easily plagues each and every one of us. And I pray, God, that you would make us very aware of such a sin. 
and that none of us would depend upon ourselves, depend upon our works, depend upon our own sense of righteousness, but that we would cast all of our hope and all of our joy and all of our assurance on Jesus alone. Lord, help us to come to a great understanding of our own sinfulness of heart. Lord, I'm so thankful that (coughs) you've kept all of us from committing as much sin as we possibly can. Lord, by your grace, you have kept us from many vile and evil things. And yet it makes us no greater than those who may have committed sins that we have not. Indeed, it should only make us all the more thankful for who Jesus is and what Jesus has accomplished in calling us unto himself. Father, make us to be like this woman. That at the very thought of Jesus, our desire, our longing is to serve and honor him all the more. I pray that our hearts are overflowing with love for Christ and that we never tire of hearing of his great work and redemption, that we never tire of expressing our great love for him and what he has done and is doing, that we never tire of calling sinners to know and love and understand the gospel, that they too can join us at the feet of Jesus with tears of joy. Lord, thank you for your word and thank you for the power of the gospel to save sinners like us. Help us, O God, to walk in humility and in the joy of our salvation for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.